And this morning I want to speak to you part one of the way of the cross, the way of the cross in Matthew 16. But I want to ask you this question. Have you ever argued with God? Have you ever just had a good argument with God? Uh, I know I have. I know people in the Bible have, even beginning with Adam and Eve, shifting blame. Moses, when he was asked to serve, he started arguing with God, making excuses. Even Jonah, who was a prophet of God, argued with God. People like Job. In the New Testament, we see a couple different places and one of the places is here in, in Matthew 16. We tend to argue with God on occasion because we think that we know better than Him concerning our circumstances, concerning our needs, concerning maybe the way to do something. We just know better. And we know we know better. But we also know what God says. And we know what he's instructed us to do. And so on occasion, if you're normal, you will have an argument with your creator. And the reason that is, is because we don't see things eye to eye all the time. Sometimes we see things one way, God sees things another way. Proverbs 14.12 says that there is a way which seems right unto a man. It seems right. But that verse ends with, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right. Makes sense logically. In our minds. In our finite minds, I might add. But it says in the Bible that the way that seems right unto men is the way that ends in death. Psalm 92, 5 and 6 says, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. I like this. My grandson would get a kick out of this because verse 6 says, The stupid man cannot know. For the longest time in our, grand, or our daughter's household, stupid was called the S word. Sometimes I say stupid a lot when I'm describing something or occasionally someone, to be honest. (laughs) And my grandson would always turn to his mom, Grandpa said the S word. (laughs) Well, it's right here in this verse, at least in the ESV it is. The stupid man cannot know the way of God, and it says the fool cannot understand this. And the reason are is because The works of God are far above ours. His thoughts, it says, are very deep. That that has the connotation that they're endless. You can never dig out that well. You never reach the bottom. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we know this. It says, for my thoughts, this is God speaking, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
Sometimes we need to be reminded that God is God and we're not. Because sometimes we look at our situations in life, we look at circumstances in life, we look at maybe trials that come our way or whatever, and if we're not in the right frame of mind, and if we're not led by the Spirit of God and filled with His Spirit, we can have a pretty good argument with God over our circumstances. Why is this happening to me? This isn't what I planned. Why isn't it working out the way I wanted it to? And we go down the list of questions and we point our finger at God. Well, this morning, we're going to see here where Peter literally has an argument with Jesus. I want to read for you just the first three verses of this. The whole context is 21 to 28, but we're just going to look at verses 21 through 23 of Matthew 16. So follow along as I read this for you this morning. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, the Lord, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When Peter rebuked Jesus for declaring that he must be crucified in Jerusalem, by the religious leaders. He either forgot or he ignored the truth that God is God and we're not. He had just proclaimed, we looked at this last week, in verse 16, he just proclaimed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now here he is, arguing with that same God. And so when Jesus made a statement that didn't fit into Peter's ideas about who the Messiah was, the apostle kind of held on to his own way of doing things and put that above the Lord's way of doing things. And he found himself in an argument, in a contradiction with the Son of God. He had just confessed that he was. Pretty interesting part of Scripture. Now, Peter, by this time, had probably been a believer for quite a while. We don't know how much time is in between all these verses. So that this lesson isn't for unbelievers, it's really for believers. Sometimes believers get in the face of God because they don't like what God is doing. And they think maybe they know better. And a lot of times we can't understand God's ways except through a proper understanding of his word and a submission to his word and then also the Holy Spirit. God has given us everything that we need in order to understand and do the will of God. 
But when we insist on our own way, when we look at God and we look at his word and we say, well, we know this is what it means, but I'm going to do this instead. Basically, we're becoming, you might say, a stumbling block or an offense. And when he, Peter, made this confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and then a couple verses later he's rebuking Christ, he's not just speaking for himself either. I want to be clear, and I made this point when he said thou art the Christ. It's not just Peter saying this. He dialogued with the other 11, and they came up with the fact that, yeah, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I think the same thing happened here. We don't want to just put this all on Peter. It's all the apostles. And you can kind of understand that. They shared Peter's belief that Jesus was the divine Messiah. And they likely shared his rebuke here of Jesus saying, no, you're not going to die by the, by the religious leaders. They're not going to put you to death. What are you saying? Remember, to put this all in context, Jesus had just reassured them that he was going to what? He was going to build his church, right? I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, which represent death, will not prevail against it. In other words, even though you may die, it's not going to interrupt my building of my church. And as he goes on, and we're going to find this in the coming week, he goes on to tell them, by a matter of fact, you are going to die. And they did. Most of them died a martyr's death for their faith in Christ. But he assured them that he was building his church and even death would not overcome that. And so the point that we have to get, first of all, is that by, un- by trusting in our own human understanding, when we come to God, if we trust in our own human understanding and that alone, We'll miss what God is going to do or trying to do in our lives. So many times we come to a certain trial or tribulation and and things, you know, just seem out of control almost. And we try to logically figure out, how can I fix this? And sometimes that's not what God wants you to do. God wants you to basically sit back and trust him to fix it for you. Because when we trust in our own human understanding, we miss what God is trying to do in our lives. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's missing the point. In his own human wisdom, he actually tried to commit the Lord, the creator, the God of everything we see around us. But you know what? We do the same thing. You read a lot of commentaries, and man, they just beat up poor Peter. You know, you think this guy was just... Some haysack from the country, hayseed from the country, and he's just, you know, out to lunch. But, you know, he, he's really not. If you put yourself in Peter's shoes and even the apostles' shoes, which one of you would say, oh, okay, they're going to kill you? Great, go for it, Jesus. I don't think we would have that kind of reaction. Like Peter, so many times we, we desire our own way instead of God's way. So we should seek to see things the way God sees things. Not just through our physical eyes, but through a spiritual dimension. And that's what Christ 
is teaching his disciples in this passage. Now, the disciples acknowledged Christ was the Messiah, but they really didn't grasp the idea that he was supposed to suffer and die. No Jew would. The idea of a Messiah suffering on a cross was so far out of the box in their thinking to the Jews. And it was really a massive stumbling block to their to their faith in Jesus. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, it says this about the cross. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. The way of the cross is a stumbling block to most. And in verse 18 it says, the cross is to them that perish foolishness. In a sense, these apostles, Peter included, are thinking like unredeemed people. They're thinking like unsaved people. And whenever you do that as a saved person, you're in trouble. (laughs) Their understanding is so incomplete that in verse 20 of chapter 16, remember... He told his disciples to what? He commanded his disciples, it says, that they should not tell anyone that he was Jesus the Christ. And you're kind of going, scratching your head, saying, why would he say that? I thought he was going to build his church, and I thought he was going to go out to the lost and dying world and see many people follow him. Why would he tell his followers, of all people, the people that are supposed to start and be the foundation that this church is going to be built on over Christ, the apostles' doctrine and teaching, why would he tell them, don't go tell anybody that I'm Jesus, the Christ, that I'm the Messiah? Don't tell them. I think one of the reasons was, and you can kind of speculate in your own mind, but I think their understanding was so incomplete of who Christ was. I mean, they got that he was the Messiah, but they didn't understand the whole plan of redemption. They didn't understand the whole plan of atonement that God had laid out through his son. They didn't get that yet. And so he said, don't even bother telling anybody that I'm Jesus the Christ because you're not really there yet. From the disciples' vantage point, the Messiah was destined for what? For glory. Even from the Gentile. They were looking at the Messiah and thinking, okay, why would he suffer in humiliation? That doesn't add up. It even comes out in John 13 when when the Lord is there and he's going to humbly wash his disciples' feet. Do you remember what Peter once again says to him? You're never going to wash my feet. I forbid it. See, it didn't seem right to Peter nor the other apostles really that the Messiah should be serving others. He's supposed to reign and rule and glory and power. And when Christ was arrested just before his crucifixion, in Matthew 26, 56, it says, all the disciples forsook him and fled. Even though, here in chapter 16, oh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But right after he's arrested, boy, they took off. Because they didn't understand the plan of God. They didn't understand the whole redemptive plan that God had laid out. And even after Christ's death, the disciples continued to be confused about what had happened. 
In Matthew 16, we read here, Christ is beginning to instruct his disciples. He's beginning this process of instructing them about the way of the cross. But the disciples' response, led by Peter, to Christ's instruction about the way of the cross, seriously offended him. And what we want to do this morning is figure out why. If you look at verse 21... It says there, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. From that time. That's a phrase, really, in the Greek, from that time forth. It marks a certain transition in the ministry of Christ. He, He used this in Matthew 4, 17. When we saw Jesus beginning his public ministry, the ministry to Israel. It's the same phrase, it's the same words. And it marked a similar transition in the ministry of Christ. It says, from that time, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time, same words. So here in the the Gospel of Matthew 16, we find this pivotal point in the ministry of Christ. And what it's denoting here is it's beginning Christ's, not public ministry, but it's beginning his private ministry to his disciples. His time where he's going to pull his disciples aside and teach them privately. Give them private instruction. Remember, they're less probably than a year out when Jesus is going to be crucified. And they're the ones that are going to be carrying this thing on. So Christ really is in his best interest and the best interest of his disciples to get them by themselves with him so he could share other things with him. So they completely understand the plan of God. The way of the cross was the plan of God. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a reaction. It was God's plan from the beginning. The first phase of Christ's ministry was primarily public, and he went out and he ministered to all the the crowds of people that followed him. And occasionally he would pull his disciples away when he could and offer some instruction. But now we're entering into the second phase of his ministry where it's really primarily private. With occasional, he's going to be dealing with crowds occasionally, but more not, he's going to be spending private time with his disciples. And you see there in verse 21, it says, Jesus began. This was a process. This, I mean, you read the verse and you think, boy, he just dumped this on him. No, he, he, had, he had been sharing this with him over a period of time. But it's important to understand that he began the process of showing his disciples. John the Baptist, when the He saw Christ. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But see, they weren't putting the sacrifice and the Lamb of God and Christ all together. They didn't get that yet. But Christ began to kind of unfold this plan of God that has been set in eternity past. The way of the cross was the plan of God. Secondly, the way of the cross was necessary. 
It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must. See that word, must? It's a divine imperative. It's something that absolutely has to happen. There's no option here of this not happening. His atoning work was set in motion from the beginning, before the foundation of the world. It was necessary. So many times people say, well, wouldn't there be another way that Jesus could die? I mean, why do you have to die such a cruel death? No, there was no other way. There was no backup plan. There was no, you know, curtain B or whatever. This is it. It really reveals, that word must, reveals the divine necessity for Christ's death and resurrection. Without Christ's death and resurrection, beloved, let's just pack our bags and go home because there's no reason to sit in here. There's no reason to sing a song. There's no reason to fellowship. There's no reason to do nothing. There's no hope without the way of the cross because it was necessary. And it was made necessary by basically four things, and they're listed there for you in your outline. The first thing is human sin. Human sin. The Bible says over and over and over again that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. It doesn't mean some. It doesn't mean most. It says all. All fall short of the glory of God. What's that mean? Everybody is tainted by sin. All you have to do is watch a little baby as they're raised up. You don't have to teach those little buggers how to sin. They do very well on their own. Why? Because they have a sinful nature. They're given over to sin. As cute as they are, they're little sinners. It says in in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, it says this, For when we were still without strength, listen to this, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely... For a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But verse 8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christianity is one of the only religions that you don't have to clean yourself up before you come to your God. He cleans you up. He saves you. He washes your sins away. You couldn't remove even the hint of sin if you you tried. There's no way. We're a fallen people. We're filled with sin. So many times we, we think that sins are things that we do. And that's true. But we also have to understand, beloved, that sin is who we are. It makes up every fiber of our being. We're a sinful people and we're given to sin by default. When you wake up in the morning, if you don't ask God for help, you're going to sin. You're going to displease God. You're going to do something that is not right in the eyes of God. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever lusted a, a thought in your mind? Have you ever taken something that's not yours irrespective of its value? All those things the Bible says, are things that God calls sin. And there's a lot more. And it only takes one. 
You tell one lie, you're a liar. You steal one thing, you're a thief. Human sin is a plague that has reached every corner of this earth and every individual. There is no one who is above human sin. No one. I don't care how religious they are. I don't care how much authority they may have. They're all tainted by sin. Scripture makes that very clear. So the way of the cross was necessary, first of all, because of human sin. But secondly, because of divine requirement. Divine requirement. Not only human sin made the way of the cross necessary, but also divine requirement. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says this, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no, require, there is no uh, forgiveness, is what that's saying. The Messiah needed to come because a man cannot pay for his own sin. And because of a divine requirement, there had to be a covering for that sin. There had to be some way to pay for it. And it's within the economy of God that he said, you know what? I'm going to work this out to where it's the shedding of blood that takes away sin. If you don't shed blood, there's no forgiveness. And thirdly, not only a divine requirement. And some people, you know, on this divine requirement, you know, they say, well, it seems like Christianity is such a bloody religion. I mean, you read the Bible and it's, you know, the priests are throwing blood everywhere in the temple and people sing about the blood of Christ and, you know... Hymns about a fountain of blood. Yeah, it is. And the reason is, is because God decreed it to be that way. He made that requirement. Remember, he's God, we're not. It's within the economy of God that the requirement, divinely, is the shedding of blood. Thirdly, it was by divine decree. Romans In uh, Romans chapter 8, it shows us that. And in Ephesians 4, Romans 8, 29, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And over in Ephesians, speaking of Christ... It's the sovereign foreknowledge of God that this was decreed out. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, just I'll read uh, verses uh, 3 and following. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as the sons of Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. 
In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound to us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, for he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both that which is in heaven and that which is on the earth in him. And you have to understand that this is done before the foundation of the world. Acts chapter 2 verse 23 says it's by God's predetermined counsel and foreknowledge that he brought Christ to die and to be raised from the dead. Acts 2.23. It's by the foreknowledge of God. So many times we think that God is up in heaven, he creates everybody, Adam and Eve's in the garden, and he says, don't eat the fruit of the tree. They say, okay, they go and they eat the fruit of the tree. And then God looks down and he says, oh no, what am I going to do now? God's reacting to mankind. That's not how it played out. He knew before the foundation of the world exactly what would happen. He knew before the foundation of the world, before we were ever even created, that Jesus was going to have to go and die on a cross and be raised on the third day because it was done by divine decree. And then fourthly, it's also a prophetic promise that the Messiah must die. You look at Psalm uh, 1622, Isaiah 53. You can read those verses on your own. See, God's plan is not subject to change. It's not subject to change. It can only be believed or rejected The plan of God can never be altered. There's no alternatives or options to God's eternal and sovereign plan. There just isn't. We don't have the right to go to our God and say, Lord, you know what, I think i got a better plan. Let me work on this. And, you know, I, I want you to change your plans to fit mine. That's what we do so many times. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Yet we can be tempted to think that way. And that's exactly what happened to Peter and the other apostles. The way of the cross is not only the plan of God and it's not only necessary, but it's also defined for us here in verse 21, Matthew 16, Matthew 16, verse 21. He defines what it means. What do you mean by the way of the cross? Well, he says, first of all, there's four things that he must do. First of all, he says he must go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. The first thing is Christ's journey to Jerusalem. It was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. What was Jerusalem known for? In their faith, it was known for the city of sacrifices. That's where you would take your Passover lamb. Now remember, he's about as far north and as far away from Jerusalem as he's ever been in his ministry. He's all the way up at Caesarea Philippi, up in the northeastern part of the area. But he starts telling his disciples, well, we've got to go down into, the, into the, the center of all this religious, all these people that are coming out here. Remember the Pharisees kept on coming out. They said they always came from Jerusalem. Try to trap Jesus. Try to get him to say something. 
even in John eleven sixteen, Thomas said to the other disciples, he said, let us also go to Jerusalem that we may die with him. See, they didn't have any misunderstanding about what it meant when Jesus said, I have to go to Jerusalem. They knew exactly what he was saying. They got it. The religious leaders of Jerusalem instigated most of the trouble against Christ over and over and over again because he exposed their own hypocritical, self-righteous and self-centered way of life and religion. And they hated him with a passion to the point where they even wanted to kill him. And so here you have Christ, the Messiah, willingly saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and offer myself. And the poor disciples, they don't get it. They just can't understand that. In John 10, 17 to 18, he said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No man take it, takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up. See, the disciples are thinking, man, we go to Jerusalem, man, there's going to be a riot, and they're just going to kill you. And then this whole thing's going to be over. Just before Christ was crucified, you remember what he told the Roman leader Pontius Pilate, John 19, 11, he says, you could have no power against me at all except it were given to you from above. See, Jesus understood that this whole thing's part of the plan of God. Things aren't spiraling out of control. So he has to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, by the way, means foundation of peace. That's what the actual word means. It's 30 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It's 10 miles west of the Dead Sea, and it's elevated up on a plateau, about uh, 5,000 feet up or 2,500 feet above sea level. It's the highest point there is the Mount of Olives. And uh, it's known as the Golden City because when the sun would hit it, it would sparkle like jewels and gold. You first hear about Jerusalem back in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, where it's called Salem. And it was administered by Melchizedek, who is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. So Jerusalem includes the area of Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham sacrifices, was going to sacrifice his son Isaac. And there the Lord provided a sacrificial animal. It's another picture of Christ to take Isaac's place. Later, David uh, took it over from the, the uh, Jebusites, and he named it the city of David, made it the capital of Israel. And this is even today, this is a a major uh, political peace in the the Middle East. What are they going to do with Jerusalem? Can they divide it? How are they going to deal with Jerusalem? That's where everybody wants to know. The psalmist expressed expressed, expressed it this way. If I forgot thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand... Forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. That's Psalm 137, 5 and 6. But you know what? In reality, Jerusalem 
was neither the city of God nor the foundation of peace. Just like it's not today. In the days of Christ, the city was in fact very hostile to God and very, very hostile to Christ. Uh, King Herod sought to kill Christ as an infant baby. Christ was hated for cleansing a defiled temple and healing a, a lame man on the Sabbath. Later, he attended a feast of tabernacles, and the religious leaders tried to arrest him in John 7. In John 8, the people tried to stone him for teaching in the temple, where he taught there again from Solomon's porch. He had to escape for his life in 10, John 10, 39. And when he later returned for his last Passover, then he was killed. I mean, it's not difficult to see why Jerusalem is given a new name. In Revelation, Revelation chapter 11, it says their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, which also our Lord was crucified. It's given a new name, Sodom in Egypt, because it's fallen so far short of what God desired it to be. In addition to going to Jerusalem, the journey to Jerusalem, it was also important that Christ suffer. He says there, back in Matthew 16, he said that, first of all, I have to go to Jerusalem, but then secondly, I have to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes. Who who did they represent? They represented the religious establishment that was opposed to the ministry of Christ. At every point in Christ's ministry, they were coming out against him. They were not on his side. And now he's telling his disciples, we're going to go into the heat of the battle. Not only that, but I'm going to have to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. Those three groups made up the Sanhedrin, which is basically the legal court in Israel. The elders were the respected kind of tribal heads and leaders. And judges and the chief priests were primarily the Sadducees, and the scribes were primarily the Pharisees. And they were the religious leaders who put, placed Jesus on trial, which was a total mockery. But he had to let them know, I not only have to go to Jerusalem, but I'm going to suffer. And then thirdly, I'm not only going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to have to suffer But then he says, and I'm going to be killed. I mean, can you imagine being an apostle, a disciple of Christ, after you see everything that's been going on, all the, you know, thousands of people that have been fed miraculously and all the miracles and miraculous things that have happened. People have gotten new limbs and, and have been healed of their illnesses. And now he's telling them, well, I got to go there. And when I get there, they're going to kill me. It was necessary for Christ to be killed. In the Greek, that term means to be murdered, to be robbed of your physical life, to be put away. But the term carries no thought of just punishment for a crime. And they've heard this kind of talk before from Jesus, but they just didn't put it together. In John 2, 19, he said, destroy this temple, speaking of his body. And what did he say? In three days, I'm going to raise it up. Well, how do you destroy a body? You have to kill it. 
John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They knew how the economy worked. They knew if there was a lamb, if it was going to take away any sin, it had to be shed. It had to be given up. Its blood had to be given up. It had to die. They understood that. But here in Matthew 16, 21, when Christ makes a statement about his death, it's so explicit that his disciples finally understood he was telling them that he's going to have to physically go to Jerusalem and die physically. And it grabbed their attention the way nothing else did up to this point. And I think they focused so much on his death. They didn't even hear when he said the next thing about his resurrection. They didn't even hear it. They were stuck on that word, die. Our Messiah, Jesus, you, the guy that does all these miracles, is going to go and die? Then the fourth thing is your Christ's resurrection. And he says that at the end of verse 21. He says, not only am I going to die, but I'm going to be raised the third day. Notice how plainly he stated that. Be raised again the third day. In Matthew 12, he kind of made a similar statement. He says, as Jonah was in was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But that's kind of a general statement. It wasn't real specific. And he was specific about the three days because he didn't want the disciples to be thinking like Martha, who said about her brother Lazarus, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day after he died. He didn't want them to think that He wasn't coming back in literally three days. Christ's unique resurrection will occur within three days, not at the last day near the end of time. So those four things are important to understand when we talk about the way of the cross. Christ's journey to Jerusalem, Christ's suffering at the hands of the religious leaders, Christ's death at the hands of religious, and then also Christ's resurrection. Now, if you were one of his apostles, you would probably, at this point, be thinking, well, wait a minute, okay. He's going to die, and then he says he's going to be raised on the third day. We saw Jesus raise other people. We've seen it time and time again, but if he's dead, who's going to be doing the raising? If the Messiah is not here, if Christ himself is killed murdered, who will raise him up? That was in their minds. I guarantee it. Maybe they envisioned a scenario where they'd be left with a dead Messiah. Well, that leads to the next point. The way of the cross was rejected. Look at verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. First thing, he took Christ aside. He took Christ aside. Then Peter took him aside. I mean, this is not, I mean, this is, if it's not so sad, it would almost be comical. Peter took Christ aside to straighten him out. 
That's exactly what this means. That Greek term there, took, suggests that he grabbed a hold of him physically, put his arm around him and said, we got to talk, come here. It's exactly what it means. He grabbed the Son of God, and just a very brash action, but also the fact that Obviously, Christ was humble enough to let him at least begin to say what he wanted to say. I mean, Christ could have just put a little invisible thing around him, <laughs> you know, and Peter could have been struck down right there for even touching him. But that's not what happened. Because Christ here is in his humanity. Christ descended to reveal himself in the flesh through Christ. God descended to reveal himself through Christ in in the flesh. And it shows that they must have had a pretty good relationship. Because Peter was familiar enough with Jesus to go up and grab him by the arm and spin him around and say, Come here, we got to talk, pal. I don't like what you're saying. They must have had that good of a relationship. Very presumptuous on Peter. But you know what? They're in a difficult situation here. They just heard some horrific words come out of Jesus' mouth. And you know what? When we are in those same kind of circumstances, in the midst of difficult circumstances, haven't you ever said, you know what? I don't even understand why I have to go through this trial or suffer this way. I don't understand it, God. And you start to argue with God. Perhaps the trial is the loss of your job or the loss of a loved one. Whatever it is, it's tempting to offer God an alternative plan. Why did it have to happen this way, God? Why couldn't you have done this? It wouldn't have been so hard on me. You kind of want to eliminate that difficulty. Often our plan is to have just... Total bliss, total joy. No pain, no suffering. We just want all the good stuff. Sometimes that's not the plan of God. Sometimes we have to go to God and we have to ask Him for help in submitting our will to His for what's best for us in the long run because we don't understand it sometimes. So He pulls Christ aside. And then he rebukes him. <laughs> it says, Peter began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall never happen to you. That Greek word there, rebuke, shows Peter's words are full of passion. He, he came on very strong with the Son of God. And he wanted to correct him. He wanted to make sure that what Jesus just said was some kind of a misstatement. To make sure that this isn't going to happen as long as I'm here, Jesus. And maybe because he had an intimate relationship with Christ. And maybe he was bothered by the fact that he just said that he was going to have to go and suffer and give up his life. I mean, I totally understand where, the, where Peter and the apostles are coming from because we're, we'd be in the same place. So we can't really dump on them at this point. But somewhere along the line, Peter forgot in verse 17 where after he gets done saying, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ says, Blessed art thou, Peter. And then he says, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Maybe, perhaps Peter's feeling a little too good about himself. I don't know. Maybe he thought he had a little more privileges than the others. Whatever reason, Peter wanted to lead Christ to a better understanding about who, who the Messiah and what the Messiah was supposed to do and who he was. Peter's plan was that the Messiah would rule in power and glory and pomp and majesty and just overthrow everything. Boy, everything would just turn around and it'd be great. But that wasn't God's eternal plan. God's eternal plan was that Christ would come, that he would give his life as to suffer and to die and to be, to be risen from the dead on the third day. And because of that difference in their plans, Peter said to it, be far from thee, be it far from you. Far be it from you, Lord. In other words, I mean, today we might say something like, you know, heaven forbid or, or whatever, you know, something like that. I mean, this isn't going to happen. Give yourself a break, Jesus. Why are you talking this way? It's interesting there that Peter addresses him as Lord, isn't it? <laughs> then he begins to tell the Lord how things are going to happen. When we call Jesus Lord, that basically means that we will obey what he tells us to do, does it not? He is the Lord, we are the servants. We are his subjects. When he tells us to do something, our answer should be yes, and how high do you want me to jump, or whatever. We don't have the right to go and barter with God about his will for our life, because he knows us so much better than we do. But Peter somehow doesn't get that. And you notice there it says, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. See, Peter was one of these guys, he was just getting warmed up. I mean, what he got out of his mouth, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. That was all grace on Jesus' part. He just kind of let him spew that out. But at that point, Jesus had had it. Jesus said, I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not going to continue this conversation. Matter of fact, I'm going to cut you off right here. Because I guarantee you, if Jesus wouldn't have done that, Peter would have went on. Because that's what that verb means. He began he, he, with the action of wanting to tell him more. Peter addressed Christ as Lord, but... He was telling the Lord what to do. We do that all the time. Very bold rebuke. And that brings us to the fifth thing here, the fifth point. The way of the cross is offensive. This offended Christ. It says in verse 23, but he turned and he said to Peter, in other words, you have this picture of Peter coming along Christ and he's saying these words and Peter is grabbing Christ and he's pulling him over here to the side and he's saying, you know, this isn't going to happen, Lord. And maybe Christ is facing away from him and he's got his hands around him. And you picture Christ breaking away from him and turning to Peter and maybe even lifting up a finger and pointing the finger directly at him and the other apostles. 
And he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You think Christ was offended? I think he was pretty offended at that, at Peter's words. So much offended that he turned around because he knew Peter's heart. He knew where Peter was coming from. He knew he just said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he had opened himself up somehow in his human logic and his human thinking, and Satan was taking advantage of him. Satan was causing question in his mind. And so Jesus goes right to the root of the matter and he says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. And how would you like the Lord to turn around to you? And you're looking directly into his eyes. And he says those words, Get behind me, Satan. What a shock. I mean, on the surface, you might think Peter's rebuke seemed noble because, you know, he didn't want Jesus to go and die. None of the apostles did. Especially a painful and horrible death. None of us would. But there's times in our lives when we don't understand that God does certain things. And God's plan wasn't the same as Peter's. And sometimes in our own lives, God's plan is not the same as ours. And there's a certain point in time where we've got to let go and say, okay, you know what? I'm okay with this. I don't understand it. I don't like it. But God, this is your plan. I'm your servant. I'll do whatever you want. I'm not going to argue with you over this matter. So Christ had to respond to what he said. And when he says there, get behind me, Satan. Here's the idea. Just get away. Go away. Stop doing what you're doing and go away. So Christ put a quick end to that. He knew exactly what was happening. Satan was using the words of Peter to tempt Christ. That's kind of what Satan does. He did the same thing with Christ in the wilderness in Luke 4, trying to entice Christ to avoid the cross. See, but Christ knew that the cross is where he would bear all the sins of the world. And after that temptation in the wilderness, the devil departed from him. But in verse 13 it says, only for a season though. He kept trying to come back. He kept trying to divert Christ from the cross. You can see it no other place better than the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ is anticipating the cross, the heaviness that he's bearing And there Christ, he prayed this, Lord, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. We have God praying to God, and he's saying, if in agony, he prayed even more earnestly, the Bible says, as if his sweat was great drops of blood that fell down on the ground. He said, Lord, if there's another way, If I don't have to do this, that's great. But you know what? Not my will, but your will be done. Sometimes God puts us in difficult circumstances. But we need to continue to trust him through it. Satan knew the cross would crush his head. Genesis 3.15, Romans 16.20. 
that it would destroy his hold on the power of death, Hebrews 2.14. He also knew the cross was where sins would be paid for and where sinners would be liberated from the dark domain of their sinfulness and brought into the kingdom of light. So Satan despised, he hated the cross. He did not want Christ to go to the cross. He wanted to prevent it every way possible. And then he says this, you are an offense to me. You are an offense to me. Those words were directed specifically at Peter. In other words, he's saying, you know what, you're, you're, you're a stumbling block. You're causing a problem here. That word offense is scandalon. It speaks of someone enticing someone to his doom. Like a baited trap. So Christ recognized Peter's words about the cross were a satanic trap. And today, even, the cross continues to be a stumbling block for most people. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians. I mean, Peter didn't realize what he was doing. He was just reacting. But Satan is so subtle. He can use our reactions sometimes for his benefit. In Peter's desire to love and protect the Lord, he was actually taking Satan's side, believe it or not. Hard thing to understand. But that's what it says. Then he says this. This brings us to the last, the way the cross is applied. He says, For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, Peter. That word setting there means to think. Christ placed Peter's action into a category where all of us go from time to time. Sometimes we, we think man thoughts instead of God thoughts. It was God's eternal plan that his son, Jesus Christ, should suffer and die. But according to man's thinking... That plan seemed incomprehensible. How could a Savior, how could the Messiah die? And that brings us right back to where we started. God's ways are not always our ways. They're much higher. Romans 8, verse 7, it says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. See, Peter saw only the crucifixion of Christ. He didn't realize the exaltation that followed And sometimes that's how we think. Nobody likes to be in pain. If you do, you're sick. There's something wrong with you. Nobody likes to be in physical pain or emotional pain or be distraught. Nobody likes trials in their lives and and, and tribulations. Nobody enjoys that. Pain is so unpleasant, we're prone to see only the present suffering. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And we miss the spiritual benefit that it works out on our behalf. We seek to escape the very trials God uses to perfect and conform us into the image of His Son. We don't like it. It's not comfortable. God knows that. Romans 8. 
once again. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good. This verse becomes so, so familiar with us, sometimes we grow complacent in its hearing. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All things. Not just the good things, all things. That means the bad things. We went to hear at a, a, a KFAX breakfast for pastors, we heard Greg Laurie speak. And he spoke to us, and he talked about the hurting world we live in, and he goes, so many times he gets the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem right. Why do bad things happen to good people? Finally he said, I don't know. Because <laughs> they do. That's it. Sometimes that's all we got. We've got to turn to God and say, you know what, we don't understand all these bad things, but we know that you do. For whom he foreknew, verse 29, says he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He's conforming us to his Son. You don't conform something without pressure. If you take a lump of clay and you want to make a beautiful vase out of it on a potter wheel, you can't just sit there and look at it and wish it would turn into a, a, a vase. What do you have to do? You have to take your hand, you have to roll up your sleeves, and you have to start working with the clay as it spins around and you add water and you begin to push and you, begin to, and you can actually grow sore in your muscles because it takes a lot of muscle work to work with a, a lump of clay to turn it into a beautiful vase. It has to be worked on. It has to be molded and pushed and shoved. Parts of it have to be cut off, scraped out. That's what we're going through every day, beloved. That's what God is doing in our lives. Closing, two quick. Last thing there, the way the cross wasn't embraced naturally. It wasn't embraced naturally. Peter just didn't look at that and go, okay, no problem. Messiah's got to go and die. Let's go support him. We'll watch it. That's why he says there, you're mindful of the things of God. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Naturally, where does our head go? Our head goes to the things of men. We're logical. We're, we're fleshly. We're earthly. We don't land on the supernatural. We don't land on the divine. We land on the sinful. What does all this mean? It means, first of all, that Christ is the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all God's redemptive plan. If you go back, historical, if you like to do history studies, you go back and you look at some of the prophecies that were made about Jesus Christ. And I dare you to find anybody that's even come near the fulfillment of prophecy that he made. And you can do that historically, factually. 
It's nothing to do with spirituality. You can do that, a factual study on that. He was God's Messiah. He was the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. But to seek the Messiah apart from his death and his burial and his resurrection is really to set oneself against God. Peter later understood, and he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, listen to this, has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Finally, Peter got it. Peter got it. That's the first thing to take home. Christ is the Messiah. You don't have to look anywhere else. You don't have to go investigate another religion. You don't have to, he's it. He's the only one that's going to offer you forgiveness for your sin. He's the only one that's going to offer you grace and mercy to put up with the sinful world we live in on a daily basis. He's the only one that's going to offer you and give to you the Holy Spirit, a divine power that will indwell you and help you live this Christian life that he calls you to. We can't do this ourselves. The second one is what we just said, that, that God refines us through suffering. Where there are no crowns, there are no crowns without thorns, beloved. We're going to look at next week. To follow Christ means that we take up the cross and we lose our life in the process. You notice each one of these points was past tense. The way of the cross was the plan of God. The way of the cross was necessary. It was defined. It was rejected. It was offensive. And it wasn't naturally embraced. Next week, we're going to take each one of those and we're going to turn them into a present tense and we're going to apply it to ourselves, not Christ. Because that's what he desires for us to do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who before the foundation of the world, was really born to die a cruel death on a cross, horrible death. And yet, God, that was your plan. That was your specific purpose for him. And, Father, nothing falls by your wayside. You see everything. You see every heart that's gathered here today. You see those who have come to you and have repented of their sins and have put their faith and trust in you. That maybe they're wavering a little bit. Maybe they're doubting. Maybe they're even arguing with you a little bit about circumstances in their life. God, I know that you're going to take them and you're going to mold them and you're going to continue to make them into the image of your son. And you're going to conform them to your image just like you do all of us. And we thank you for that, even though it's painful at times, even though it doesn't feel comfortable. Lord, there's also... Maybe those here this morning who have yet to put their faith or trust in you. And they're waiting for something. Lord, we've seen this morning that you are the Christ. There's no other Savior to go to. But God, it does require we're going to look at next week, us to give up our own lives and to follow you. And that's not something to be done lightly. That's a very difficult point to take home. But Father, that's why I want to ask your divine enabling of anyone here who is yet to believe in you, who is yet to put their faith or trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins. 
Lord, that you would help them to set aside maybe the religious baggage that they've carried for years. Maybe emotional. Maybe even physical, I don't know. But Lord, you totally understand it. Maybe you can help them with the fear of yielding to you, giving it up. That's a big step. God, I pray you'd override their own flesh and that you would allow them to see and hear this message through the eyes of God. That you would help them see it in a spiritual sense. And you you would work in their hearts that you would draw them to yourself. Father, we thank you for our salvation in Christ and we pray that as we go out into this lost and dying world that surrounds us on a daily basis, that we would not only live it with our lives, but we would share it with our lips, the life-giving, gracious, loving gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would see lives transformed and saved for your glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.